0: Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashken Kazarian. On today's show, we're going to talk about scooters. Have you seen one of those on your streets? I definitely have. I'm scared of them. I think they're going to knock me off or they're going to like crash into someone, and I'm just always scared. But a lot of my friends have said that that's a very convenient and new way of transportation for them. So I brought in the expert of experts on scooters, Jennifer Huddleston Skis, research fellow at the Mercado Center at George Mason University, who has written about this more than you can even imagine. So Jen, thank you for joining the show.
1: Thank you for having me here today, Ash. Well, it's a pleasure,
0: um, Jennifer. So let's start by the Basics. How did scooters even start getting deployed? Uh, What was the initial reaction? Is this comparable to when? other type of transportation technology was getting um, just started in cities?
1: So it's really cool how they were deployed because they just popped up overnight. When Bird and Lime and some of the other scooter companies started out on the West Coast in Santa Monica, a little over a year now, all of a sudden people just woke up one morning basically to these scooters being available. So what you said earlier about, are they like the other tech companies? They have a lot in common with kind of Uber and Lyft when they started. So coming into places that needed transportation options, starting, building that consumer interest, and then going from there and really taking off. In the first several days that they were in Santa Monica, we saw over 100,000 miles on scooters. In D.C., where we are now, they've been here for probably about six months, and again, we've seen over 50,000 people riding them and over hundreds of thousands of miles ridden on them. I think it's really a case where entrepreneurs saw something that consumers could potentially respond to and found a way to fill it. They saw that a lot of people were having trouble with this kind of last mile problem. So think about when you get off the subway and you want to go to Whole Foods and it's a little too far from the nearest subway stop. You could get on a bus or you could call an Uber or you could take a taxi, but really all of those require a lot more effort. At the same time, sometimes it can be a pretty decent walk, especially if it's over a mile or whatever. So these and other micro-mobility options like dockless bicycles are kind of stepping in to fill that gap.
0: So what has been the general reaction to this new transportation option being available?
1: There's actually been a really positive reaction, both in terms of seeing a lot of pickup really quickly when they've launched... There's also been some negative reaction, particularly from regulators. Unfortunately, one of the problems with these devices is that cities can literally pick them up and take them to City Hall and not let the innovators have them back until they come and play nice as far as the regulators are concerned. So we've seen some back and forth between innovators and regulators. What's been really interesting is there was recently a survey done by Populous, and it found that actually. All different levels of income had a positive view of the scooters. Also, they were mostly viewed, they had the most positive view uh, for people making under $50,000 a year. So at times there's kind of been this perception that this is, you know, a Silicon Valley tech bro way of getting around. But really what we're seeing is that it's a much broader base that are happy to have more options in urban areas.
0: Well, what I've seen in my personal anecdotal experience is a lot of teenagers also, right? And But at the same time, it's D.C., so I see a lot of people in suits just kind of waving their way through the crowd. And I have a few questions just about the logistics of this. First one is, are you required to wear a helmet?
1: In most cases, there is not a mandatory helmet law. This is a lot like bicycles in that while helmets aren't required, A lot of times it's a smart choice to wear one. And in fact, some of the companies, Bird, for example, will send you a helmet just for the cost of shipping and handling. We've seen a problem with other even docked bike shares. If you look at the Capital Bike Share around here, you don't necessarily see a lot of people wearing helmets either. That's because of consumer choice, not because of something that the companies are doing, really.
0: All right. Makes sense. The second one is I see a lot of scooters In the middle of the street, in the middle of huge streets. So I'm guessing they're allowed to do that as well as do the
1: sidewalk? In most cases, they're actually supposed to be on streets or in bike lanes. It varies some from area to area and different cities have said different things. The main thing with parking them is trying to get them out of the right of way. But because particularly when you have a bike lane, these are going over 10 miles an hour in some cases, it's usually safer to be in the bike lane than on sidewalks. That being said, there are clearly cases where if it's a busy street and cars are going really fast, people are either making the choice, sometimes in violation of local ordinances, or because there is no requirement, trying to figure out which is safer. If you have a broad, uncrowded sidewalk versus a busy street, a lot of times, just like with a local bicycle, it would be easier to go on the sidewalk than on the street.
0: In general, by default, they shouldn't be on sidewalks is what I'm hearing. Right. So next time I see one, I'm just going to yell at them. That's good. (laughs) All right.
1: You also shouldn't be seeing all those teenagers on them because you're supposed to be 18 to ride. (laughs)
0: Well, maybe maybe they just look young. Maybe they're just aging well. We don't know. So another question I had was, um, you mentioned uh, different authorities, um, local authorities, grabbing the scooters, taking them to the city hall. And I remember the not a joke, but the story you've told before that um, in Nashville, what did they do? Do you want to tell our listeners?
1: In Nashville, it's really interesting because it's a city without a lot of public transportation options and with a lot of areas where you have a lot of tourists who might not have cars. Um, you have several colleges with Vanderbilt, there, where it seems like a good place that you have a population that would really welcome the scooters. So it makes perfect sense why these entrepreneurs wanted to go into Nashville. So they dropped the scooters off, just like they have in other places. And Nashville city officials came and impounded all of them until they would come to City Hall and negotiate some sort of pilot program that would allow them to pay pretty hefty licensure fees, um, develop a lot of other regulations and restrictions. On the scooters about where they could and couldn't be. And let's be honest, raise the cost of this innovation. As a result, though, Memphis heard about this and welcomed them to Memphis, said, Bring, all, you know, we would love to have these devices here. It's a similar environment. There's not a lot of public transportation. We we welcome you here. We want to work with you. What can we do? And when they brought the scooters to Memphis, they actually had the mayor and the city council members on them on the first day, and they've really shown how cities can embrace them. There's one more side note to the Nashville story, and that is when they impounded the scooters, city hall employees got caught riding them around. So it seems like the city knew that this in was a- In the city hall, right? In the there, city there hall. There are videos of them just racing in the city, city hall. hall. It seems like the they knew this was definitely a transportation option that could be fun and enjoyable and serve the city and that they were looking at a way of, of regulating it while enjoying it themselves at the same time.
0: Is this just a way for some localities to have a payday or do you think there's just different philosophy approaches to new transportation options that exist depending on where you are in America and how difficult and uh, intense the transportation crisis is?
1: I don't think that most cities are looking at this just as a cash grab. I think that When we had Uber and Lyft coming, you had an entrenched interest with the taxi companies. You had somebody saying they need to be regulated the same way that we are. You don't really have that with the scooters there. In some cases, they may be displacing city docked bike shares, but I don't think that that's really the impetus behind these regulations. In a lot of cases, this is actually a bigger question about how are we going to allow transportation innovation in the future? You have... Lots of urban areas that are really undergoing basically a transportation crisis. We're no longer in the one driver, one car era, and we're seeing heavy congestion and cities looking at ways to reduce that, to reduce commuting times, to provide more green options. And this is one way to do it. At the same time, though... Because this is a new and disruptive technology in a lot of cases, because it just shows up, you do have kind of people who have that not-in-my-backyard attitude. So while the overall reaction to scooters is largely positive, if City Hall is hearing from those people that don't want them, they feel the need to regulate a lot of times.
0: What would you say is the best option or way for localities to address and build a relationship with this new transportation companies. Do you think there is a way of kind of self-regulating? Is there some kind of a middle ground where it's regulation, but it's light touch regulation? Is there a solution that can be applied everywhere in America, or should we be more focused on specific cases?
1: Some of it, of course, is going to be city by city because the existing transportation option or are different, the existing infrastructure is different. Let's say compare
0: Los Angeles to DC.
1: Right. So in Los Angeles, you tend to have broader sidewalks, you or at least in Santa Monica, where they launched, that was part of the purpose, was you had these broad sidewalks already, so they could go on the sidewalks rather than in the streets. In D.C., you tend to have more narrow and crowded sidewalks, so it would make more sense for your regulation to be that they need to be in bike lanes as opposed to on the sidewalks. At the same time, the purposes we've seen the scooters being used for are also different. So in Southern California, in the West Coast, they seem to be more of a a joyriding thing of an something you would do maybe to run some errands or to go and enjoy an afternoon with your friends. Whereas here in DC, people are actually using them to commute, particularly from areas where you either had a long walk or the Metro didn't go, or you were, might've missed your bus. And so that's really, going to be city-specific and somewhat because the use of the scooters are somewhat specific. That being said, I think one of the key roles that the government can play in this area is to be an educator. So we talked about helmets earlier. Why might you want to make sure that you're wearing a helmet on the scooters? What are the safety risks? And also just even an awareness of parking. So when we talked about Memphis, one of the things they've done is create quote-unquote bird's nest where you're supposed to leave the scooters. So their area, the sidewalk. That are designated either by paint or a symbol that says this is where you're supposed to park the scooters. If you want the scooters parked next to bike dogs, and that's going to vary from city to city, kind of where you want them parked, where, you know, what is the good solution of if we need to remove these things or what, you know, happens when you're in certain areas that maybe are more crowded.
0: Another thing that we have to keep in mind is that winter is coming And this will be, if I'm not mistaken, the first winter that was gonna test the scooters and the way they help people transport from point A to point B. Now, DC doesn't get very icy, but I do slip and try not to fall a few times over the winter, would the scooters, I don't know if you've heard from the companies or read somewhere, would they have a different type of tires now for the winter? How are we going to address the, the snow?
1: You're right. This is the first winter that they've been in cities that actually deal with winter issues, um, You know, whether it's snow or ice. And like you said, D.C., we're not in a huge snow area, but we do get some good storms. I'm not aware of any changes that they plan to make to the devices at this time. I think it'll be just like we've seen them in the rain, we've seen them go out in um, different areas where there might be different road conditions, better or worse. As a result, we'll probably see different ridership patterns more than we'll actually see a change to the devices themselves.
0: Are you aware of any lawsuits against companies, scooter companies?
1: So it's interesting, there actually have been two lawsuits recently filed, both out in California, one against the scooter companies and one by the scooter company. So there's a class action lawsuit against the scooter companies out of Southern California claiming that these devices have created a nuisance. What's kind of concerning about this is one of the things that this lawsuit is seeking is a flat out ban on the scooters in certain areas. These scooters have really provided a lot of people some real benefits of having access to cheap and affordable transportation that they didn't have before. So the idea of uh, these devices just being a nuisance seems really misguided. And unfortunately, if we see a lot of liability placed on these types of devices, it's possible not only do we lose this transportation innovation, but other innovators may be less likely to go into the next phase of micromobility. So we've seen the scooters, we've seen dockless bikes. Now we're starting to hear about things like dockless mopeds that may be coming. At the same time, we've also seen Bird file a lawsuit against Beverly Hills for banning the devices. So it'll be interesting to see both how those two lawsuits work out, as well as what it may mean for the future of not only this transportation mode, but other transportation modes, too. We will
0: have to have you back to talk about the lawsuits as they progress. Before we wrap up, we have a Women in Tech segment that I've been dying to have you on. I just usually ask my female guests about their background and how did they end up doing the tech policy that they're doing right now. And just in general, what would be your advice for young professionals or students who are considering this area, but are not sure even where to start looking?
1: So for me, it was kind of an interesting story because I was always interested in issues like driverless cars and how this interacts with, various other well-settled legal doctrines. I was in law school at the time and had kind of really been interested in torts and liability and questions also on free speech. So the internet was certainly an interest to me. But I was told in law school that you can't do tech policy unless you have an engineering background and want to go the IP route. I was very fortunate to be part of one of Mercatus's academic student programs, the Boss Yacht Fellowship, and ended up meeting Adam Thier and having a really great conversation about liability issues for driverless cars. And it was really through that mentorship that I found out that actually I could do what I had wanted to do all along in a tech policy role, that I didn't have to have that super technical background to be able to talk about these issues. And I think particularly for a lot of women, that can be something that holds them back of, we assume that if you're not a programmer, that you don't have the expertise to talk about this.
0: It is absolutely a boys club, but also I know very few people who have uh, engineering or technology background who work in tech policy. Most of them have policy majors and a law degree or like an economics degree. And that's
1: it. Exactly. And I mean, certainly having more women on the technical side is something that we need as well. But the fact that you don't necessarily have a technical background shouldn't be something that holds you back. And I guess that would be my advice to young women thinking about going into this is if it's something you're passionate about, look at how you can use the skills that you do have to do it and don't be worried about the skills that you may not have.
0: That's very wise. And just to wrap up, why don't you talk a little bit, just a few sentences about your soft law paper that I hope we will have you back with Adam Thier to talk about.
1: Great. So Adam Thier and Ryan Hageman and I have a forthcoming paper called Soft Law for Hard Problems, looking at how we aren't really necessarily seeing these hard law, legislative, formal rulemakings anymore. For these new emerging technologies, things like driverless cars, advanced medical devices, 3D printing, all things I'm sure Ash has talked about on the show at various points. Instead, what we're seeing are these various soft law guidance working group methods of regulation. So the prime example of this would be the Department of Transportation and their autonomous vehicle guidance. We haven't seen formal rulemaking on autonomous vehicles, but yet we're seeing a lot of progress in this area because there is this guidance document that kind of tells innovators, we're not gonna regulate you away, go forth and innovate. We think this is a great thing. But at the same time is really casting a wide net of, soft regulation where you still have a lot of flexibility as the technology develops. So it's a way of overcoming what's called the pacing problem, the idea that technology moves faster than regulation can. At times the pacing problem is actually a pacing benefit because you can't regulate away progress, But a lot of times what we've seen is as a result of this pacing problem, some bad regulation or bad legislation try and stop progress. So soft law can be a solution that helps kind of bridge this gap.
0: Can't wait to talk about that. You bring Adam, I'll bring Barron. It will be a party. So uh, Jen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ash. We're going to link to Jennifer's Twitter and her Mercatus page that has a list of all the publications that she has done. And also we're going to link to a few that uh, are specific on scooters in our show notes. So please look those up. You can follow Tech Freedom on Facebook and Twitter at Tech Freedom. Please leave us a review so others can find the show, even if it's a negative one. I just love reading them. Thank you for joining us.